Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Really excited about the subject of today's show, the legacy of Frank Frazetta, just like it says in the title. Um, the Frazetta Museum is open again. There is a new Kickstarter campaign for some amazing uh, T-shirts of four Frazetta paintings that have never been represented this way before. Moises Chuan is going to join us for the first uh, segment to talk about the Kickstarter and uh, it's it really describe the products and how cool it is. There's only seven days left in the campaign, we say nine days on the interview, but I don't want you to be confused. It is seven days left of uh, this campaign. And then we're going to talk to Frank Frazetta Jr., uh, live from the Frazetta Museum, and uh, just get a little more insight into uh, his dad and what an incredible guy Frank Frazetta was. If you don't know the name, you certainly know the art. Uh, pieces like Death Dealer and Berserker, um, Frazetta was born uh, February 9th, 1928. He passed away May 10th, 2010, and uh, was an incredible prodigy artist, even as a kid. Um, he uh, His first comic book work was the eight-page story Snowman, and uh, started working immediately for things like Prize Comics and did John Wayne comics in the 40s. He also made comic strips. Uh, he did work on... Uh, the Buck Rogers uh, covers for Famous Funnies, and he worked on Little Abner uh, for Al Cap for a long time. But then he also made his own strip, uh, Johnny Comet, one of my personal favorites, and he assisted Dan Barry on Flash Gordon. But uh, really exploded in the 60s uh, doing uh, fantasy cover art for a long stretch of the Robert Howard Conan books, the Edgar Rice Burroughs Tarzan and uh, John Carter from Mars books and then for creepy and eerie would do these amazing beautiful covers and um, movie posters as well we talk about it with frank jr and then things really just exploded and uh you know uh frank and his wife were smart enough to start a mail order service for posters representing their art and as i say growing up as a kid in the 70s and 80s uh all over the place vans dorm rooms calendars uh, Frank Frazetta art was everywhere, and it was just gorgeous fantasy art. So it's a real pleasure to speak to Frank, uh, who can give us firsthand stories of his father, his process, and uh, also, frankly, living up to the guy. Because uh, Frank Jr. tried to, you know, uh, with his dad's wishes, uh, tried to explore doing art himself. It just wasn't his passion. And, uh, you know, he talks a bit about that. And the, You know, unfortunately, you might have heard that after uh, Frank Sr. passed away, and Frank's wife passed away. Uh, there was some infighting with um, the uh, the siblings of Frank Jr. Uh, what to do with the the art collection. Luckily, they made uh, peace after a rough start. And um, I'm glad Frank Jr. was able to uh, continue uh, things with the museum and his wife and her uh, instrumental participation in uh, keeping the thing going. Frank Jr. wanted us to absolutely know how important uh, Lori Frazetta is 
to uh, continuing the legacy of Frazetta with the Frazetta Museum. But it's in the Poconos. It sounds like it's a fantastic destination for a trip. And, uh, you know, it's, again, we get to get an insight in uh, the man and the museum and the legacy, all three of those things. Frank Frazetta today is the subject of Word Balloon. Today's Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much, League, for your support. Um, you keep the show going, and there are newcomers that have joined on today, or this week, I should say, and uh, I appreciate that. The, uh, there are people that have re-upped and even uh, expanded their subscriptions as well. So I thank you very much for supporting the show. If you'd like to subscribe to Word Balloon, if you think Word Balloon adds to your appreciation of the comics culture with these interviews, you can subscribe via Patreon. Pardon me. You can subscribe via Patreon at patreon.com slash wordballoon or go to wordballoon.com and uh, click on the Patreon ad there. It will take you directly to my Patreon page. But thank you for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners. So there you go. Uh, We'll give you information about the Kickstarter and uh, where to go if you're interested in getting the T-shirts. But uh, in the meantime, uh, I want to start things off with Moises Chuan to talk about the campaign and what they're doing to support uh, the Frazetta Museum with some pretty incredible T-shirts. So here's Moises Chuan now on Word Balloon. Moises Chuan, welcome to Word Balloon. We've uh, had a lot of uh, convention encounters, and now you're on the podcast. Welcome, dude. Yeah, encounters would be uh, one way to say it. Long, long, <laughs> long time listener, uh, first time uh, guest, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be on. Thanks for having me, man. Well, I'm excited about this uh, Frazetta stuff that's going on with Kickstarter and all. And uh, you're going to give us the lowdown on that, and then we're going to talk to Frank Jr. So uh, tell me, uh, tell me what's happening with uh, this is for the Frank uh, the the Frazetta Museum, correct? Right, right. And I, I got involved in this uh, because a friend of mine who had previously done a Kickstarter that was to benefit uh, Bernie and Liz Wrightson um, was getting together with Frank Jr. Who I'm, I'm not going to waste too much of your time so that you can you can get to the true sign of the legacy. Um, <laughs> He uh, he he did this uh, this remastering uh, re-release of of Bernie Wrightson's Cycle of the Werewolf with some really cool extras, pins, buttons, you know, all, all that jazz. And I, I've been friends with Liz and Bernie for a number of years now, being on the con circuit because anybody who's met them is friends with Liz and Bernie Wrightson. I'm with you. Uh, you know, I, I hate I hate that there's a, a past tense attached to that yeah. at this point, but. Um, he he did this really great job. I mean, he's a horrible human being, I should say first of all. <laughs> but that aside. The, the respect for the art, the respect for history, the respect for people who need somebody to stick up for them after the point that publishers aren't paying attention to them as much and doing as much heavy lifting for people as when they're in their prime. I mean, the, the beautiful thing is that, you know, like IDW is finishing that that last Frankenstein book that, yep. that Bernie was working on with uh, with Steve Niles. And that's wonderful. And that's great. But there's only so much that you can rely on publishers that you've worked with to to make sure that the legacy is maintained and there's certainly only so much that somebody can be expected to do when they're also in the process of you know dealing with the fact that they've lost you know somebody somebody so dear and important to them um so despite the fact that tim doyle is a horrible human being um who you know makes makes a few things that that you might want to hang in your house um despite all that he uh he got together with frank rosetta jr to do a kickstarter to bring four of, of Frank Sr.'s most famous paintings into the world of, of silkscreen prints for the first time cool. and and make that kind of the the really special way that people can directly support the Frazetta Museum, uh, which Frank Jr. will tell you more about. Um, but I, I, 
I know that I know that we've, we we talked a little bit about this on, offline. I don't know if you're if you're that familiar with the whole silk screen uh, printing subculture that much. I know you're a big movie buff. Well, That's I something certainly that anybody no, who listens I, to the shows knows. We have yeah, we certainly have reps that you know are doing that thing now that uh, you know are certainly taking advantage of the art community here in Chicago. So the Tim Seeleys, the Mike Nortons, the Sean yeah, Doves, yeah. the Jill Thompsons, they're all you know cranking out stuff for for the uh, exploding. Uh, you know, customized uh, silk screening business that's going on right now. But feel free, continue and uh, illuminate the re- uh, the listeners. I was going to say the readers. <laughs> well, uh, I, the, some uh, a weird bit of of common thread that that I have with Tim is that both of us at different times worked for the Alamo Draft House movie theater company based sure. here in Austin. He um, he was he was a, a co creative director at Mondo, which started out being like a a a, uh, a t shirt shop. In the bottom of the main Alamo Draft House theater, where they would crazy, they would uh, they would they would do like iron-on transfer T-shirts, you know, with uh-huh. all kinds of weird <laughs> and wacky stuff. Sure. And they started doing silkscreen posters for different movies. Whether they were doing a special event like an outdoor screening of Jaws on a lake, where everybody'd be in inner tubes, and there'd be somebody swimming with a scuba mask with a with a shark fin going through the water, you know, neat, nifty, cool stuff like that. It and they started looking at the emerging collectors market for silk screen gig posters for for rock bands sure you know that that had become a thing especially in the 90s and a lot of these same designers they're among the most talented designers artists in the industry they brought these people in to start doing alternate movie posters for these special events these special screenings and so on and it was very much a niche part of what they were doing. And the company from the beginning was called Mondo Tees because it was the T-shirt shop right. in the bottom of a movie theater. It was just a merch shop. But then these things started picking up this crazy amount of steam on the aftermarket as collector's items. Because I, I, I'm sure that you could probably name off a dozen movies right off the top of your head that you love the movie and you hate the poster. <laughs> right? Sure. Absolutely. Right? And so what, what you get is you have some of the most talented designers – and artists in in those industries taking their considerable skills and applying them to doing cool and interesting and different takes that you've never seen done. Um, you know, a, a particularly colossal sized King Kong print, you know, for example. Sure. Um, the, the prints that a lot of people came to know Mondo and, and the reason that a lot of people in the same way that you remember when people would just call video games Atari or just call video sure. games Nintendo. Sure. So people will call these silkscreen prints. They'll say, oh, it's like a Mondo print, even if it's not actually Mondo doing it, because there are loads of companies that do these things where they privately commission the artists. They pay the licensing for the property. They make a poster of this stuff. People just call it a Mondo print because they got so deeply associated with it. And and I would say the iconic posters that a lot of people know, which have now been reprinted onto shirts and, you know, you see them bootlegged all over the place at conventions – are these three original Star Wars um, trilogy prints for Star Wars Empire Strikes Back and Jedi. Because um, I don't call the first one New Hope because I'm not a Philistine. Um, <laughs> and they're, they're these gorgeous, very evocative, silhouette-based designs uh, by one of the great artists on the planet, uh, Ali Moss. Um, a lot of people know those designs. They have seen them. They have made them, you know, their backgrounds on, on their computers and so on. Um, and especially when Mondo got that Star Wars license, as things had already been taking off for them for some time, it really exploded like crazy. And there was a lot more interest flowing into this niche market. And so what we have now are loads of different shops 
that do limited run silk screen prints of uh, of posters. And for for those unfamiliar, I mean, you can look it up on Wikipedia. Again, I'm just getting in the way of Frank Frazetta Jr. and that's that's not a fair <laughs> thing for me to do. Um, you've got you've got a you've got a series of of screens that are used to lay down a color at a time. So if you have say a four color screen print, you have a very nice piece of paper, and you've got four different impressions that you're putting down on the paper in a particular color of ink and they're being layered over top over top over top Mm -hmm. so it's a very it's in the world of photoshop layers in computerized art it's really easy to visualize that where it used to be more of a you saw the finished product and you assumed it just kind of like ran off of a printer but it was it was a much more hand-pulled artisan process than that so this is the the long way around to explaining why this is such an insanely crazy deal, which anybody who anybody who who knows Frank Frazetta's art, these beautiful, beautiful paintings, look at them and you go, that doesn't look like something that you can divide up into a few layers yeah, in into Photoshop. Four, into four layers, absolutely. Yeah. So so what um what Tim's guys have done is partnered with uh with a with a printer who specializes in reproducing painted art in silk screen prints where they're laying down multiple layers, sometimes of the exact same color, but in different orders so that you're getting a true faithful representation of the art. Excellent. Uh, That's, that's a, that's a big, huge thing is, is making it as close to the original art as you can get without sacrificing detail, without sacrificing quality and giving you something different than you can get in the most incredibly, insanely high end digitally printed thing. Every single one of these things is being hand pulled. You're getting a you're getting a pull of paint on each one of these screens that it goes through, and you can you can feel it, you can see it, you can smell it on the paper. Cool. You know you're you're not just you're not just putting one one laser brush of of color on this stuff. This is serious, real deal, high quality stuff. The kind of stuff you take to a framing shop and have framed under museum glass. Sure. Because it looks that good. Um, this is the first time. That not only these paintings, but any of Frank Rosetta's paintings have been have been uh, have been presented as screen prints, and the way that the Kickstarter works is is it's set up effectively as as an open edition for the regular versions of these prints. So as many people as back this thing, that is how many of them will be made, and that's it. Okay. Here, there's no there's no going back to the printer and running them off again. It's not it's not it's not a laser jet. It's not that kind of thing. I'm with you. So. You, you stop me if any of these are unfamiliar. Death Dealer, you know this, of course. That's the that's one of the main classics. Absolutely, go on with with with, uh, with respect to the intellectual property holders of the Robert E. Howard estate. Barbarian, you're familiar with with which painting I'm referring to? Yeah, I think we can uh, do the math and figure out what Barbarian uh, yeah. Frank, uh, was depicting. Then go on. Brycrom, indeed. Um, <laughs> Silver Warrior. This is this is one this is one that you've seen in in one or twelve places. Yes, sure, absolutely. And uh, and the Huns. Okay. The Huns? The Huns. So, the, is the Huns the uh, Molly Hatchet uh, uh, Frazetta, or is that is that not one of the four? No, it, well, the, the the Huns the Huns is is one of the four that's that's right. part of the Kickstarter. But I don't know. But, do you do you know the was the Huns used for Molly Hatchet's flirting with disaster back in the day? Because that was a classic uh, Frazetta that beyond. The Frazetta fan world uh, certainly made an impact in the rock world as well. Do you remember Molly Hatchet uh, flirting with disaster? See, this is why I'm getting out of the way of Frank Jr. because he's much more the subject matter expert on that kind of stuff. All right, we'll leave it for Frank Uh, then. We'll we'll table that and and move on. But that's – no, that's terrific and I'm – it's surprising and I'm going to ask Frank. I'm assuming that maybe back in the earlier days because the the Frazetta posters were always such a big part 
of yeah. of the the family business and everything. Did they do iron on t shirts back in the day of some of these iconic things? I mean, I just remember I, they had to have. They had to have. Yeah. And I mean, there there there's there's an exclusive Frazetta Worlds t shirt that's part of the 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 different backer awards and everything. Okay. I, well, to, to to just to rattle off a couple of things like there's a like there's a yeah. foil set a foil set version of them where um where they're they're all printed on hollow foil paper iridescent sure. foil paper wow um because people are into that stuff sure you know it's it's a thing um <laughs> you know you get you get matched numbers that's a thing for people um there's a t-shirt i mentioned there's a set of enamel pins the enamel pins are, are, are hip with the kids these days uh you know those damn those damn kids and their rock music um and the craziest thing, honestly, in in the whole Kickstarter is one of those ugly holiday sweaters with Death Dealer on it, <laughs> which is kind of which is kind of for me the most attra- aside oh, from the prints yeah. themselves, it's the most attractive thing to me because I don't wear sweaters like that, but I would actually I would wear a Death Dealer oh, Christmas God, sweater. Yeah. Be a hit at your geek Christmas party with a with a Frazetta holiday uh, sweat uh, t shirt or rather sweater. That's fantastic. Very but yeah. Funny. You know, you can you can go individually on the prints. You can get the whole set and and get all four Excellent. of them. Excellent. That's that's great too. Because honestly, and I and I think it's great when people can afford all four pieces. But if they want to buy one piece, I think that's a good uh, deal as well. Well, so. here's the other thing: is is uh, the the thing I mentioned earlier. Th- there have been really beautiful high end clay prints of these pieces done, but the pricing has put it outside of the realm exactly. of affordability for a lot of people. And the beauty of silkscreen prints is that, yes, it is a very intensive hand wrought process and all that, but these are, these are reasonably priced compared to spending a few, you know, a couple thousand dollars, Agreed. you know, on something like a G clay. Absolutely. Uh, you know, these, these are, you know, they're hand embossed, they're on nice, high quality paper. They they will look handsome and gorgeous, and are suitable for a place of honor in your home. And you can break the bank on the frame if you want. You know, sure. Anybody who's had anything custom frame knows what I'm talking about. But but when it comes to just getting the art and making it accessible for people who have the t-shirt budget and don't have the, I'm going to put it in my my gallery room. Right, right, absolutely. Where I keep my works of art. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> Like that, that's, that's the thing that, that excited me about it. Aside from the, the core, the core mission of the proceeds of this going toward keeping the Frazetta museum alive. Absolutely. In the first place. No, that's, Um, he's, he's, you know, one of the unsung heroes of, of comics. I think people forget. And then you bring up Frazetta and it's, oh, of course, Frazetta, Jesus, look at the body of work. Look at the amazing things that he's done, not only in paperbacks, but his comic work speaks for itself. The movie posters that he made over the years as well. No, he's a genius, you know, and, and that, that yeah. uh, was it, um, I always forget the name of the documentary, was it Playing With Fire or? Uh, play, uh, play, playing With Fire, Playing With Fire sounds right. Yeah, and I know Fire is definitely in the in the title, but yeah, the Frazetta documentary they made. Pa- painting With Fire. Painting With Fire, like painting obviously, with fire, yeah. obviously uh, is so terrific and uh, really does, you know, I, I'm so glad that. Frank was able. Frank Senior was able to do that before he passed, and it wasn't just a bunch of people talking about Frank. Bernie included, obviously, in that documentary, as I recall. Yeah. Uh, it's no, it, the guy's work is amazing, and uh, I the museum itself uh, needs to survive. And I, and I'm really glad that uh, Frank Junior is uh, doing everything he can to to keep it going because, again, I don't think this man's work should be forgotten. Well, one of the reasons you know that I, that I started listening to word balloon early on was because you, you did these in-depth interviews with people that cared about the craft. You dug deeper than people would generally do in something like a dashed off 
website interview, something like that. And in in becoming a, a comics podcaster myself, albeit my show's been on hiatus for about a year, <laughs> uh, it's coming back. It's coming back. I swear to God. The the thing that I run into all the time that I'm sure that you do, too, is you start interviewing an artist and if they are remotely interested in paint, if they are remotely interested in fantasy, the first two words that come out of their mouth are always Frank Rosetta. Absolutely. Well, Frank Rosetta, of course. Yeah. Frank Rosetta, of course. I mean, Frank Rosetta is the beginning. The, he's the alpha and the omega. Absolutely. That's that's where it begins and that's where it ends for me. Um, you know, you, you talk to Greg Capullo. You talk to Bernie. I mean, you talk to Bernie. Jock. Jock, you know, like loads, loads of loads of these artists. Um, and his his style is undeniable. The iconic presentation of the figure, the way that it draws the eye is something that I mean, it permeates all of the best stuff in comics. Yeah. And it, and it hasn't aged in any bad way. And I loved, uh, you know, a few years ago when was it image that uh, through image that they had the Frazetta comic a new series where, you know, they kind of. Base new stories on the original uh, art that was, you know, and you got the covers where the Frazetta paintings and stuff, and then inside you got great stories. Do you know what I'm talking that about, Jay? Photos? Sounds, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that sounds right. I want to say, well, yeah, well, I can't remember which imprint. It well, was, I, I know that it existed, but, but I forget which publisher. It is, yeah. which is which is why which is why I work adjacent to comics and not in <laughs> comics. Well, and then also, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, I know that in the '90s too, during my blind spot years. There was a series of that stuff, and also I think Frank Senior worked with Danzig for a while, and they were they were planning something. I know my buddy Sal Abinati told me that he ran into Danzig and and uh, Frazetta together, and it was his one face to face with Frank Frank Frazetta. So I'm I'm bummed that I missed it. I got to talk to Bashki. That's the closest I got, and so at least I got a Frazetta <laughs> collaborator to. Uh, I, to well, talk look, to. you get to you get to hear stories from Sal, who I like. I've I've yet to meet <laughs> Sal, but I, like you know, I'm, I'm friends with Tiziano and sure. like all these people that, that are that are in the the uh, the orbit of of the man, the myth, the legend, <laughs> the man, the man who who steers the the USS Alex Ross. Um, but yeah, like th- those kinds of stories just fascinate me. Uh, I was. Uh, this is this is a minor tangent, but I think you'll permit it. Uh, a friend of mine, Lewis Black, not the comedian, but the co-founder of the South by Southwest Festival here in Austin. Cool. Um, he he talked about uh, being a kid growing up um, in New Jersey, and uh, he and his buddy Len would go across the bridge into New York, and they would hang out in bars as children uh, with with uh, with uh, this guy named Otto, um, <laughs> who guess. who did comic books. Oh. And his friend Len was Leonard Malt. Oh, that's fun. So who which who was the Otto? So uh, was that was it? Otto Bender. It was Otto. It was Otto Bender. Okay, very good. For yeah. that, I thought it was going to be Otto Preminger, the fine uh, <laughs> director. As I said, that's cool. <laughs> Jesus, Otto <laughs> Bender is very awesome drink. and stuff. We had yeah. uh, uh, Bill. Um, oh, bless me, Bill Shelley, who just did that wonderful Otto Bender biography a couple of years ago, and did the Kurtzman book recently as well. Uh, there, there's so there's so many of those like crazy stories of so I was in a bar and Stan Lee was oh, shouting across it at so and so and you know uh, somebody or another was you know was 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 doing a rewrite on something on a napkin you know just crazy stories that that uh, that there there are plenty of them that are out there and oh, that yeah. float around and they get retold but there there's plenty of stuff that that you just you don't hear those those really incredible anecdotes of you know what ha- what happens at the bar con after the con sure. for the day. I'm glad I got to meet uh, and talk to Joe Kubert for a bit at a bar con kind of moment. Yeah, uh, right before he passed, uh, it was great to meet Joe Simon before he passed. Uh, you know, so yeah, I've got I, you know, and then of course the the wonderful Bronze Age uh, creators that thankfully are still with us 
and a couple silver guys in there because technically uh, Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill are pre-Bronze Age uh, yeah. creators, so I think technically Silver Age creators. So I've got I got them on my uh, you know encounter list, and certainly guys that I've talked to. And pleased to say, I won't say who to keep it a mystery. Word Balloon listeners, but one of those gentlemen will be back very shortly on Word Balloon with the new conversation. So I look forward to that. It's going to be a busy November. Well, I, I, I tell you, I, I honestly, you, you know, you, we, uh, you know, I've I've done enough warming up of the crowd for uh, for, uh, for, for Frank for for Junior, but but the the thing I'll I'll leave you with is is again, thanks to you for for doing the show that you've been doing, because it's why I do my show Giant Size and and talking about those experiences you have at a con that you never in a million years would have fathomed. You know, I'm 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 one or twelve years younger than you. Just a touch, <laughs> just a touch. I'm not a baby. I'm not one of these like twenty somethings. I, I'm, I not, I'm, I'm in my thirty. I'm in my thirties. I'm not that young, John. But I grew up. Um, I grew up uh, pulling comics off of spinner racks, and I was reading the Fantastic Four when Tom DeFalco and Paul Ryan did this uninterrupted like five year run. Like the last sure. time somebody did five years on the Fantastic Four. I'm with you. Go on. And the next to last convention that Paul Ryan did before he suddenly passed, I ended up with my buddy co-hosting a Legends of Comics panel with Paul Ryan, Howard Mackey, and Val Merrick on it. Oh, that's great. That's fantastic. That's a good triple there, and, right there. Absolutely, and man. Howard and Paul were buddies and knew each other. Val didn't know them, but they, you know, they 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 crossed over just enough. Okay. That they had stories about some of the same people and the way that things moved and changed and everything. From the and 70s to the 80s. Yeah. And 80s, obviously. Yeah, in 2000s, I guess in Howard's case. Just Certainly. like the, the the completely different nature of everybody going into the office at Marvel in New York and working, uh, I, I, there was this amazing anecdote that I couldn't even reproduce uh, if if I tried my hardest to to get within an inch of of, of how well they did it. But but they they talked about the pranks they would play on people where. Um, you know, Paul Ryan would show up and nobody knew what he looked like because he always mailed in his work and he shows up wearing a three piece suit and people think he's like with Marvel corporate. And, you know, this is this is as the bankruptcy is an impending and, you know, he's like, oh, oh, no, a suit's coming in from from upstate. What's going on? Um, you know, pranking shooter, like just stuff that stuff that I had never heard that I, you know, that I don't know had necessarily been told before. There's so many stories like that that, you know, if, if people who listen to your show don't regularly go to cons don't regularly go out there and and make new friends and, and that kind of thing. Uh, doing that has has changed my life for the better. It's part of the reason that I'm I'm on your show right now talking about this this great thing that, as we speak, has nine days left on this Rosetta Kickstarter. So if uh, if you can contribute to it, um, I, I I got involved with it specifically because of the cause behind it. I've got enough stuff in my house. Um, you know, this stuff will not look bad uh, by any means, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, but you know, get yourself some neat stuff and and support a worthy cause that helps continue the the legacy and the story of, uh, of Frank Rosetta and and his influence and work. Excellent, Moises. Well, and thanks for the kind words, man. I, I really appreciate it. And everyone lately has been very kind about. Just keep keep know. that keep that fucker Tom King off your show. Just, <laughs> I've I've heard enough from him. He's selling so well. He's coming People back. say they love him. You know he's, so, coming he's coming back. back. He's doing too much. Well, he's he's doing I'm, too then well then lately. I'm sorry. Then I'm, then I'm shut off the subscription. I'll come. Ugh. I'll come back. When, I'll come back when you have the first edition of the DC Bendis tapes. Yeah, I know. How about that shit? I uh, I, I, I know. As we're recording, it's uh, still the same day that they've made the announcement. And how uh, how crazy is it that the first thing I thought of was, man, I wonder when Sunchers is going to book him for <laughs> Bendis tapes because I got to get three hours, three and a half, seven hours, however many hours. You know his voice doesn't give out. I, I've got to. I've got to hear him talk about this. This, this is, is crazy. No, I uh, I uh, intend to tie him down 
uh, for a nice <laughs> lengthy conversation, and we will uh, we'll be having that in the days ahead. But uh, yeah, first things first. Uh, really, the the legacy of Frank Vizetta can't be ignored, and you'll hear more about it with uh, Frank Jr. in the next segment. But uh, Moises, thanks for coming on, and uh, also. Uh, I, I like giant size, but I got to tell you, I prefer your Skype handle, Art House Cowboy. Oh, I'm giving yeah. away a secret. Should I not tell you? I'll, no, I'll no, no, cut no, that, that if you want. No, that, yeah. Well, you, you, let, I mean, cut the cut cut the. Uh, well, no, I don't care. No, no, no. I'm not gonna. Uh, here, if, let me if, let if, me redo I, that. Look, hang look, on, what, uh, hang I, on. Don't worry about it. No, no, it's okay. I like giant size, but I got to tell you, uh, I, I like another nickname for you, Art House Cowboy. I think that should be the name of your podcast, I, man. Well, well, here's the thing. I I wrote a column uh, for a site called Hollywood Elsewhere when I was in college. He gave me free reign to write whatever I wanted. Didn't edit me. Just said post something. Post something consistently and don't uh, don't embarrass me, kid. And I dug the name. I dug the title. And when I got into podcasting, the the central show that I, I say I say that I do, but it's been on hiatus, uh, is called Electric Shadow, which is oh, very nice. It's a transliteralization <laughs> of the Chinese word for cinema, which you oh, break it apart. I had no idea. Yeah. Go on. It's evocative. It's interesting. It was something that didn't have the word movie or cinema or any of the six words that are pretty much in all movie podcasts out there because it's not I it's understand. not just a movie podcast. It's about the nation of look uh, the the notion of looking at cinematic technique and cinematic storytelling in in ways that it's evolved I from see. movies to TV, even to video games. Sure. Well, um, I would imagine. Uh, comic page composition might, uh, you know, probably be a fair subject as well. Yeah, le- leading the eye, directing the eye to 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 what you want people sure. to look at. So it's it, the the back catalog of that show has some pretty uh, some pretty diverse stuff in it. Uh, con Q and A's that I've done with various people, uh, and I I can say that it is coming back. So the the one plug I will permit for myself um, is that uh, is the show is coming back. I've got an interview with one of the animators on Pixar's Coco. Terrific. Um, that's going to bring it back off of hiatus. I've got an interview with Kathleen Turner. Wow. An interview with Mara, cool. Mara, Mara, Mara Wilson, who uh, has a new book out Equally cool. that Go is ahead. outstanding. Um, uh, Felicia day, Karen Allen. I, I've got, I've got a ridiculous array of stuff, some Great. particularly unique star Wars stuff that I'm going to time for the release of the last Jedi. Um, but it's it's much more important that you you know subscribe to that if you want to. There will be more podcasts than you can handle in that feed very very soon. That's awesome. But back 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 this Kickstarter. Uh, take a look at Tim Doyle's uh, other work at, at Nakatomi Inc. I'll I'll give you the link for that, uh, John. Okay. So you can you can plug that in at the end. Sure. But uh, but he 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 runs a full service uh, print shop doing all kinds of stuff. They set up at cons all over the place. They were just at New York Comic Con, which is which is where you met Frank Junior. Which That's there, true. there's your set. There's your segue, Suntress. Oh, I like Throw it. Throw to Junior. I like it, man. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, voices. I'm gonna take Thanks, a. Man. I'm gonna probably take a commercial break before we uh, get to Frank. But I appreciate the segue there. Good throwaway there. Well, that's the thing, true believer. You gotta pay the bills one way or another. Excelsior. Okay, let's uh, get to our conversation with Frank Frazetta Junior. I apologize to Lori Frazetta for not being able to accommodate both of them on the call. Frank was on a phone. And uh, it just it, it sounded too airy uh, using the speakerphone. And so I had Frank kind of get on the handset, and it's a little bit better. But uh, I did feel bad about that. But uh, Frank uh, gives Lori her due in the podcast and how instrumental she is in terms of uh, once they took over the museum outright, running the museum and keeping things going. So, And, and uh, as uh, Frank says at the end, uh, he's got some other projects coming up. I am happy to have them both back to help promote the museum because I, I really believe in the cause. I think uh, the legacy of Frazetta needs to be uh, maintained 
and uh, this should go decades beyond. This is just like Jack Kirby. We uh, we cannot let geek history move on uh, and let Frank Frazetta become a forgotten hero of geek history. It's his impact was too great and continues to reverberate today in uh, our our most popular artists as we go over some of the people that were and are such massive Frank Frazetta fans. So it's a pleasure to talk to Frank Frazetta Jr. now on Word Balloon. Frank Frazetta Jr., welcome to Word Balloon. I'm, I'm always pleased uh, to get a chance to uh, talk to the children of, uh, of my favorite creators. It's great to have you on. Welcome. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, spread the word about my father. Thank you. Absolutely, man. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, we, we talked earlier in the, in the segment about uh, the Kickstarter campaign. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you guys have found a, another revenue stream for the museum. I know mail order was always kind of, am I right, that that was kind of a good revenue uh, uh, thing for, for the museum and for really for, uh, for Frank Sr.'s business in general? Absolutely. Uh, my mother and I ran the business pretty much from 1971 until about 2009. So she passed, and the, the website and the museum, and she was basically my father's agent. So she had control of his artwork, and uh, she pushed it. And I did. I did the social media on the website because she was not illiterate with computers, <laughs> nor am I that much. But we we pushed it through there, and we did very well. But then after the uh, the passing of both parents. Uh, the four siblings did what they wanted to do, so it was basically broken up a little bit more. Sure. So the revenue stream isn't as great as it was at one time, but we do have the museum and uh, established that it is reopened again. So a lot of some people still don't know that, but we're working to keep this legacy going for the uh, more so for the younger generation who has seen the art but doesn't know who the uh, the artist and the creator is. So well, that's really what we're trying to focus on. I understand, and I, I'm glad you're keeping your dad's uh, legacy alive, uh, not only through his work, but really his story. Uh, is it Painting with Fire is such an amazing documentary, and I'm really glad your dad was alive to be a part of it. And, and also, um, I, I'm assuming that my listeners may not know, that uh, what year did your dad have have that stroke and, and use the loss of uh, uh, or lose the uh, use of his uh, right hand? Uh, Ninety five, he, he uh, had his first stroke and he recovered about eighty five percent. Then he had a minor one following that, and then he had another major one. And he was he was in sad shape. We thought we pretty much lost them all together, except for his heart continually beating. But he uh, went to a rehab center, and uh, they worked. Worked at him for about six months or three months, and uh, it was amazing how they turned him around because he couldn't even speak or walk. And they had him talking and walking, and actually he he uh, felt his art career was over, even even though he was pretty much semi-retired. But they convinced him at the rehab that, Mr. Frazetta, your art comes from your heart and your brain. Your hand is just an extension to get it to the paper. And once he was convinced of that and worked at his first six months of drawings were very crude, but in a matter of a year, he... he basically mastered the left hand again and he did some beautiful paintings left-handed that, that are hanging in the museum at this time that's amazing how many how many left-handed pieces are at the museum because uh, we only saw i think one or two in the documentary yeah you probably saw in the documentary i'm not sure i think the gorilla painting the girl it's like his second attempt at the cat girl and then he did the death deal number seven left-handed okay and then he did another painting for the wwe wrestler as well, so wow. there's four paintings and quite a few drawings. That's amazing, honestly, and and it really, you know, your your dad was tough, man. I mean, I, I love those pictures of him. You know, uh, I'm assuming in his younger years and everything. Uh, this is a big, strong guy, and I, and I'm really glad that the therapists were able to 
uh, convince him where his true talent really lied in that his his hands were just another tool. And I'm glad that he learned how to how to do it. it that's great. There's a, there's a Batman artist, Norm Brayfogel from the 90s, who, who suffered a stroke and I know is uh, currently not drawing. And I hope uh, he finds inspira- inspiration and is able to do what, what your dad was able to do. It really is incredible. It, it was. I mean, uh, my dad, whatever he put his heart to, and mind to, he, there was no stopping him. But there were certain things in his life... He had no interest in it. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about fame ever. I mean, some people may think that, but I believe in my heart, a true artist, whether it be a musician, instruments, uh, painting, whatever it might be, it's not about it's not about the money and fame. That comes along with it, obviously, if you if you're that great of a talent. But he he focused on living every day to the fullest, and that was his life and his goal. It was living with his family. He was not a he was not a prisoner to his art. It was a way to make a living to keep the roof over his head. And other than that. He would drop his paintbrush in the middle of one of his masterpieces to run outside and play stickball or softball with us without a second thought. That's great. That thing was due tomorrow. He would, he would sit there and drop it. And he said the good thing about that, he'd come back, you know, hours later and the painting would be fresh to him. He wouldn't get, you know, it would be, become stagnant if he'd worked that long on one piece. And he'd overthink it, overwork it, and it becomes posed, which is exactly what his art is not. That's amazing. And I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear that, too, that. He, he did have that time for family as well because these, I mean, yeah, these pieces, you know, as, as you well know, and, and uh, being there while these things were being created, uh, I can only imagine what that was like. I know, I know you've drawn and painted as well and, and done some cartooning. Um, you know, did you, uh, how, how was it like living with your dad and, and this amazing talent and being able to watch this stuff from, you know, rough drawings to the completed paintings? Well, there's a lot of misconception out there right now. Everybody, as, as you would well aware, would think that it was about dad or about the artist and the famous artist and the creator. It was never about that. As, as we grew up as a young boy, dad, as an artist, would start painting at night, usually like 10 o'clock when we went to bed. With a blank canvas, we'd get up in the morning, it would be finished. And that's as simple as that. Wow. He put it in the oven to dry because it was oil paint. <laughs> he, used very, he used very small canvases or canvas or canvas board or masonite. Because living in the city, you have to take a taxi or or, or a subway to the uh, the publisher's office, and he couldn't paint very large scale just for that reason. Sure. So, but it was never about Dad, the famous artist. It was, it was, he never portrayed that, nor did he want to. It was always about Dad. I mean, I wrote a book about him as a tribute to him in 2014, called "The Art and Remembrances," and it was basically my life with my dad growing up, and it gave people an insight and a vision to who he was behind his art. And he wasn't. I said it. He wasn't a prisoner to his art. It was never about that. It was just, Dad, can we do this? Dad, can we do that? And he was always there for us. Absolutely. And being home all the time, you know, with Mom and Dad, it was, sure. you know, having two parents growing up with it wasn't like Dad went to the office. We didn't see him. Right. He was home from morning till night with us, and he did his thing at night, through the night. When, kind of uh, a vampire kind of father. I, <laughs> I know a lot of creative people. Who, who work from home and, and do the same thing, you know, family times during the day. And like you said, vampire hours at night, cartoonists and writers that operate that way so they can spend that yeah. time with their family. I'm going to That's cough. a true, that's, that is actually a fact that people who are creative, their minds basically get stimulated at night and that's why they work through the night. It's just not like the time they put aside for it. It's been a proven fact, scientific fact that that part of your brain is stimulated basically like seven at night and later. That's the same with me. I'm creative, and I can't lift weights or paint or draw or write in the middle of the day. It just doesn't work for me. Interesting. 
So how old were you when you realized that your dad's stuff was all over the place in uh, dorm rooms and vans? And I mean, I'm uh, I, I grew up in the in the 70s and I remember well the uh, you know how, how how prevalent a lot of your dad's art was, not just on the paperback covers, but the posters and uh, like I said, people people painting their vans to look like uh, the Frazettas and stuff like that. I would say, well, I was born in 1957, so okay. by around, you know, the Conan, the Conan thing came out in 66, Conan the Barbarian, and, uh, you know, we used to go to bookstores. My dad would go in there and just to see if his book was on the shelf, and basically that's about mm-hmm. the extent of it. But I would say when Mom took the business to uh, licensing, where Valentine books did, you know, one through five books and the calendars started, where my basically my dad was the... Uh, the forefather of the uh, fantasy genre, and yeah. that's when it all started. Probably in 1971, we started to realize how big it was going to get, and uh, Mom just went full boat. She was her, his agent, very protective of him. And uh, basically by 71, 72, my dad was semi-retired. You know, he'd get a 1000 to do a, a paperback cover, retain the art, and Mom was getting fifty, seventy-five thousand dollars advances for for books and calendars, which was incredible at the time. Hell yeah! But then you can't you can't demand that money because there's so many other imitators and other artists that you know are very, very talented. So um, I would say mid seventies is when we started realizing that you know that's when Clint Eastwood and Sylvester Stallone, George Lucas all came to the estate, and that's when it was started to be a lot of fun. Did your dad do uh, film conceptual art? I know he did a lot of movie posters uh, in in the sixties and seventies, but did he did he ever do uh, conceptual art for for films like Storenko did for Indiana Jones and things like that? No, well, he did the, he did the poster from Gauntlet with Clint Eastwood. Sure. That's why Clint came up here in seventy seven. In the early, I think he did What's the Pussycat after the Fox Night like They Read the Peter Sellers yes. and Victor Mature in the sixty. But there again, the reason he jumped on that and the reason that all oh, transpired was from 1964 he did the, the portrait of uh, Ringo Starr for the back of Mad Magazine. <laughs> Hollywood picked up on that and at the time I think he said he got $150 for that. He, they retained Crazy. the art. Hollywood, yeah, Hollywood picked up on that and you know, they, and this is 64, they offered him $5,000 to do one of those movie posters and that was like he said a year's salary at the time. Sure. So other, and I said it wasn't about money but he's, he just had his second son and Third one was on the way, I believe, the daughter, and uh, he jumped all over it. And he did, I think, 14 total movie posters, and that was a lot of money back in that time. No question. And again, like you said, some of these were really uh, our kind of classic movies, The Night They Raided Minsky's and After the Fox, the great Peter Sellers film. Uh, no, it Mad was Monster really... Party, he did all as well. Mad Monster Party was my favorite. Oh, one. my God, Mad Monster Party. That's Party. fantastic. <laughs> yeah, did two of them for that. Wow, that's crazy. Did Ringo ever see your dad's Mad Magazine uh, thing? Uh, I'm sure he has. I mean, we never met met him, uh, but I'm sure he has. Okay. And my dad was trying so hard with my mom to get that original back. And I know one, they, they spent a lot of money trying to find out who was the owner. When they finally contacted him, they offered him like three times more than what it was worth, and he wouldn't give it up. So. Wow. That's what they, they did love that painting. That was really a fabulous portrait of him, character. How many private pieces... Uh, are not part of of the museum that are that are floating out there with private collectors. You're talking about strictly oil paintings. Yeah, paintings, but also any any significant. You know, God, I love your dad's pen and ink stuff as well. His, you know, oh, his, his... Sad, well, sadly, uh, the art, the four siblings, my brother, myself, and two sisters, we uh, split the art up four ways at the end. 
uh, after mom and dad passed. So I basically have with my wife in the museum, uh, as far as oil paintings, probably 35 original oil paintings. And I tr- we never knew exactly how many he did in his career, but we have an index book, and I think I counted like 360 oil paintings he did over his lifetime. So we only have a small amount of his original oil paintings. And as far as pen and inks, watercolors, pencil drawings, I can tell you right now, he's done a million of them in his, in his lifetime from the age of three and on. I bet. And we just have a smidgen of what it is, you know, a tenth of a, a tenth of a percent of what he's really done. Wow. But we do have a nice selection in the museum of what he, what he, uh, to, to show you what he's done since three years old. That's incredible. Yeah. You know, honestly, I do. I love every facet of your dad's career. And, uh, I know through, uh, Vanguard, I picked up, uh, his, uh, comic strip run on Johnny Comet. I'm a big fan of that. The uh, race car, uh, comic strip that he did. Right. And, um, what was I can't remember the name of his Jungle Man, not his tar- Tarzan stuff. It starts, I know, with a K. Conga? A Thunder. Thunder, of course, Thunder. Oh, man. That was like such a great find to get that oversized Bud Plant reproduction of Thunder. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, man, I mean, that's that's the great thing. Your dad was just so comfortable in any form of, you know, whether it was paints or pen and ink. Um, and, and I imagine the rigors of comic strips and comic books and stuff. No, it's just a pleasure seeing your dad's art, you know, through the years and it's evolution, but I mean, God, even in the, you know, in the forties, the man had it. Oh, absolutely. He, there was nothing. Like I said, he started drawing when he was two and a half. He remembers too. And growing up during the depression, his mother and father, his father was an immigrant from Sicily, came over when I think he was four or seven years old. My grandfather told me, and there was nothing in the house to draw on. And he said at that time as a young boy, he said, if you drew pictures, he goes, instead of being outside with the guys and the boys and the girls, whatever it was, he said, you were considered a sissy. Okay. So he kept it secret of his art. And he said, he'd go in the basement and look through old books or whatever he can find for a blank piece of page, or even as far as toilet paper, he said to draw on. That's how much it was in his blood and desire to want to do so. He said, he'd also take his mom's soap, and do little carvings on it until his mom found it and basically gave him a couple of good waxings behind. <laughs> <laughs> so during the Depression, his parents weren't even aware that he drew. And not until eight years old, one of the art teachers in school called his parents in to let him, you know, why isn't this boy in art school? And they said, we didn't even know he, he, he drew at all. <laughs> so basically my dad said they, they gave the parents hell and they threw him right into the uh, Brooklyn Academy of Fine Arts at eight years old and immediately became the, uh, the uh, instructor's Main student, yeah, prodigy child, and uh, my dad loved it. That's amazing. So his, his, his mentor passed four years later, and uh, was going to take him to Italy, which would have been interesting how that would have, how that would have came out. But the really the, the most interesting about my dad, and we always discussed it, was he was a tremendous athlete, very physical. And in 1947, he was drafted by the New York Giants baseball team to play center field. Oh my God! And uh, he it was the offer was three thousand dollars for a year, so. That wasn't very enticing at the time. And uh, he declined it, and a year later he came back and offered him the same thing, maybe 3500 He said, no, I just can't do it. And I always asked him, I said, Dad, what would have happened if, if you would have taken up that, that offer? You know, certainly there was no money in it at the time, but it was his true love art. And he said, well, he goes, art was in my blood. He goes, certainly never would have reached this, this magnitude of, of artwork in my, my collection. He goes, but I would have certainly been drawing on the airplanes and bus rides, but it would have been a sad loss because not that we've ever would have ever known about it, but 
I mean, it's, it's really great that we have what we have left. No question. Today. I mean, Absolutely. Well, so I mean, we, we hear so many people coming to see my, my wife and I, and it's great to hear. It never gets tired because they always say it probably gets tired of hearing how great your dad was and how he inspired us. It never gets old because it's just the magnitude of his, his talent, what it did to other people who changed their whole life's goal at what they wanted to focus on for a career and turn it into art in some form because of my father. It's just it's amazing. Well, so and beyond, really looking at it a whole different way. It, it doesn't surprise me. And again, I'm always pleased when, uh, and unfortunately, we, we lost Bernie Wrightson, but guys like that, and I know Bradstreet is such a fan, and so many great, Brahm, of course, I know gives it up to your dad in terms of being the, the inspiration for what he does. How about the celebrities? What 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 celebrity fans uh, were there of your father's? Oh, like I said, Clint Eastwood, Stallone, Lucas, Spielberg, Schwarzenegger. Um, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of them. I, I heard through you know, Robert Rodriguez, the producer of Cameron. Sure. Anyone you talk to in Hollywood who's who's up in the film industry, Ralph Bakshi, they can yes. say because there isn't a producer in Hollywood who, who who does that sort of film industry. You know, fantasy, science fiction doesn't have has their their walls covered with posters of my dad's artwork so they're inspired by that george lucas said there'd be no star wars if it wasn't for my dad's book rogers from the 50s and he came in the museum and pointed out different pictures that inspired him to create the death uh, the death dealer was his inspiration for darth vader the helmet and the buck rogers uh, yeah, buck rogers was his inspiration for luke skywalker and there's a cover that he did for Buck Rogers in, I think, 1955, that you could see his hairy ape, sort of a Chewbacca oh, creature funny. walking through the doorway, and said that was an inspiration for Chewbacca, so it all came from that. That's incredible. So, it all stemmed from my father, including Stallone. I mean, Stallone was uh, a little different celebrity. He was more into himself than, than the, other, <laughs> the other celebrities that came out. And the funny thing was, most of the celebrities were very reluctant to come out and meet my dad because, based on the art that he created... I mean, Clint Eastwood told it right to my physicist. I was I was afraid to call your dad and actually to come out. He says, I honestly thought your dad would have dreadlocks in his hair, wear these weird clothes and and bones in his nose, like a like a like a zombie. That's that's how feared they were of my father. Until he came out and he was, you know, the most mellow, laid back, down to earth guy you'd ever meet. That's what's so great about him. Well, it came across yeah. in the in the documentary, and and it was great to see that. And I. You mentioned Ralph Bashke. I've had him on the podcast and uh, their collaboration on, on Fire and Ice, the animated movie from the early 80s. I really appreciated yeah. that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, no one, no one can replicate what your dad did, and I know you already know that. But that's the thing. I, I yeah. really do think it's amazing. Uh, I mean, your, your dad really did, you know, kind of he, – he was like Sir Edmund Hillary on top of Everest, man, and everyone else is just trying to – Reach the 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 pinnacle if they can, but nobody nobody can reach your dad's level, man. Yeah, yeah there's a lot there's a lot more to it than just being creative. I mean, he he actually lived a lot of his paintings, being physical. He knew what what the uh, limitations were with a human body, and what they should look like. I mean, when Schwarzenegger was to play the role for Conan, my dad immediately turned down helping with the film. He said because he's He's a muscle weightlifter. He says right. he's not Conan. Conan's swinging an axe and a sword. He's supposed to look lean and muscular. Not not every part of his body blown up. That's not how it is with a Viking or a barbarian. So as simple as that, he knew what, what the limitations were. and he, he never used models, except for maybe lighting once in a while. He used me and my mom for lighting aspects on certain paintings. And 
He said, if you use a model, you're restricted to a pose, and then you become tight and stiff, and that's what happens to a lot of artists. That's incredible. As you can see a lot of painting. So, so yeah. a lot. And another problem is that, that they render the whole painting. You know, my dad, if you look at his original artwork, it's hard. You can't pick it up on a, a paperback book that's five inches by seven. Sure. To see the original art before you with the lighting hitting it, to see how my dad had a focal point where he f- forced you without even, you know, subconsciously, he drew you into the part of the painting that was the most important. And the backgrounds are always just suggestions of a castle. It wasn't a castle with a window and a door and the steps and the cracks and the stone. It was just a vague outline of it to where your eyes would catch it, but you'd just be drawn into the focal point, whatever that was in that painting. And you can't pull yourself away from it. And you can go back and look at the same painting a hundred times, and each time you'll see something different because you're so drawn into what he wanted you to see. And it's, that's the really, truly amazing part about his artwork. That's, that's fantastic. Tell us about the museum. What, what, uh, what do you want people to know uh, beyond the obvious? And, and again, being able to study these, these paintings up close. But, uh, yeah, what are you proud of as far as what you guys uh, present in the museum? Okay. Well, the museum originally reopened. The original one was 85 in, in, this, in a small building in town. We moved it to Florida in 92, I believe. And we moved it back for security reasons, and Florida wasn't a place like that. It was too hot. So we built this beautiful museum on the estate. It looks like a Spanish Spanish villa. Now, in 2000, we opened it up a year prior to the documentary. And it was basically a focal, fo- focused on oil paintings, 92 oil paintings on the wall. And that was it. But we've learned through, through experience and people coming in and speaking, the true artists, even though he became famous and world-known world for his oil paintings, the, the artists want to see his preliminaries in the process sure. and how it became a, a finished oil painting. And when, after mom and dad passed and it was close for a few years, my wife and I reopened it in 2014, I believe. And I present the, the uh, museum as a, uh, in chronological order. It starts out with his early art from three years old, eight years old. And you see the progression and the transition of a young artist who doesn't understand anatomy quite yet, but has the gifts based on what you see on the wall. And, it, you know, it just transpires eventually into his finished art. And we have very personalized things in there, like his golf clubs, his camera collection. <laughs> his, you know, everything related to my dad, so you'd know who he was behind the scenes, Absolutely. not just the artist. So you get to see his sketches, his watercolors, his, his early art from a young boy. And just, I, I, you know, everybody that comes who's seen it, before and after and love it they like it more this way it's just it's just more telling about who the artist was as you said uh, no you go ahead no, i don't want to step on you there go ahead if you had my wife worked very hard i mean my wife has become a huge fan just like my mom it's become before it was always frank and ellie and now it's frank and Lori. that's beautiful runs the business like my mom she, she uh, protects it and you know we never get tired of it it's a lot of work and to know that you know that you sit there and look at this artwork and how valuable it is, and you can sell a piece of artwork and retire the rest of your life. Or, when, but once you do that, it's gone, and there's nothing. There's nothing to appreciate that art. Somebody else has it at their house, and the fans don't get a chance to see it, and they'll be inspired by it. So that's why we work so hard to keep this thing going, and we reach out to the fans to come out and visit us, to to go to the website and buy products to help us uh, keep this thing rolling, and that's our main goal. Understood, and I'm glad you're doing that. And you know, uh, I'm reminded of again of Indiana Jones. This should be in a museum, and it's like you're damn right it should. Certainly, the the Frisetta yeah. stuff. And um, did he ever teach? Uh, you know, a young artists uh, process. Uh, he's taught Ken Kelly, who's an artist today, a very popular artist. He taught him. That was my mom's nephew. 
and he wanted me so badly to be an artist, and uh, I just rebelled against it at an early age. I just didn't want to be an artist. It has to be in your blood, and Absolutely. you have to have the love for it, because it's something you have to motivate yourself to do. So around when I was about, wow, maybe 35 or 40, I sat down with him and started doing some cute little drawings, nothing spectacular, and he gave me the anatomy book. He said, here's Bertram's anatomy book. Copy this book and then get back, to come over when you're done and let me take a look at him. And he said, I did this whole book in one night. Well, it's easy for him to say. Sure. <laughs> so I did about two pages of a bicep and a forearm and a tricep and not realizing, oh, I think I got it. I got it now. I, I know how to work this. But as soon as the arm moves, everything you just learned goes away because now the muscles are twisted and contorted to a different, different area. And it's like, Oh my God, I got to relearn this again. It's like, and it became so like, much like trigonometry. I said, you know what, Pop? This isn't for me. I'm sorry. And he was very bummed out about it. And then there's a few drawings that I did do in paintings I put on the internet. Some people loved them and said, great, keep it up. And you always get the critics out there. So oh, I'll never be as good as his father. And my dad goes, he goes, he goes, get used to it. He goes, he goes, I have people criticizing my art. He goes, and those are the guys who came through a straight line. He goes, don't get affected by it. Don't, don't read into it. It doesn't matter. I said, Dad, but I can never be as good as you. And he goes, well, join the club. I said, well, I don't want to be in that club, Pop. So, I hear you, man. So I just kind of stay away from it. So uh, it just wasn't for me. So I did some little cute little things over the years. Yeah, and then I, I copied ants. quite a few of my dad's pieces. Wasn't like like a little cartooning thing? Like, wasn't it ants or something like that? I remember seeing Yeah, yeah, like yeah. But I, yeah, I did quite a few little ant, cute little ant ones. But then later when I... My dad gave me a few lessons. My ant drawings became almost like realistic cartoons. They became very detailed and <laughs> structured. And but then, and I just gave up on it. I said, nah, "That's not for me." And I opened my own business, and I did very well. So I understand, man. No, that's you know, Jack Nicholas Jr. could never play as well as his father, and and that that's it's tough, man. It's it. I can appreciate that, and I and uh, I think it is tough, uh, you know. And I'm glad that instead you're able to celebrate your father and it not become a frustration. You know, I, I think that's really important. And, and again, I mean, it's, I, I'm glad that, you know, it sounds like you had a good loving relationship with your dad. I hope so. It sounds like you did. Oh, absolutely. It was so close. It was, it was as close as it could possibly be. That's beautiful. I said man. I missed him dearly. That's excellent. Especially he lived right across the field. He was a stone throw away. And, you know, I, I'd see him just about every night and I had four children and then, you know, the grandchildren came and he, he, you know, he's so excited when the kids came over every day. He just, whatever he was doing, he'd drop it and it just play checkers with him or draw with him. And sadly, my daughter, Nicole, got the gift that my dad had, like I did as well, but she liked to draw. And sadly, my dad isn't here, but if he was, I can't imagine how great she'd be right now. Oh, wow. She is incredibly artistic, and it's sad that he's not here to teach her because my dad simplified the whole drawing process to where there's, 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 a, there's a process from beginning to end, but she knew what was important and what wasn't, so he'd eliminate but really didn't have any bearing on the final product and result in painting. And he would just get right to the point and uh, it was easy to learn from. And that's why he's so, so emulated because you look at his art, it looks so simplistic and it is, but everything's in the perfect spot. Absolutely. That's the, that's the difference. Oh my God. You look at some of his early pen and inks, the women are gorgeous and you look at her face, there's really an eye, no nose, very little lip if all, and if at all, I'm, She's gorgeous. She's my dad said, because your, your mind fills in the blank as long as the other parts are put in the correct spot. <laughs> yeah, that's easy for you to say, Pop. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm glad I ran into you. He did it without thought. He did it, he without, did it without thought. thought. That's amazing. I'm yeah. glad I ran into you at uh, New York Comic Con at the, the Heavy Metal booth 
And yeah. I mean, to be honest, I was just going to uh, the small press area because it was one of the few places you could walk and breathe because of the crowds in on, on the main floor and uh, and down yeah. in Artist Alley. But uh, I, I, mm-hmm. it was great to see that um, in heavy metal, uh, there's some uh, Frazetta paintings that had never been uh, printed before, right? Yeah, yeah. Rain and Wizardry was one of them, yeah. That's cool. That was great. Yeah, done in 1964. That was very erotic. Uh, sexually explicit painting that uh, over the years my dad one by one removed the, the male anatomy <laughs> so it wasn't so embarrassing to myself or I've yet to speak about it so and now it sits in a museum on an easel and uh, it's, just, it's just a classic painting very few people have seen and we do have a lithograph out now of it so my mom never wanted to expose that painting but now that it's it's been cleaned up and it looks fabulous. It's one of his top ten paintings that he created, for sure. That's amazing. What What can you tell us about Death Dealer? I mean, that's uh, that and his Conan stuff are really, I think, the things that people think of. And of course, the Molly Hatchet painting. So first, let's let's talk about Death Dealer and, and coming up with that concept. Well, Death Dealer, this, this was created in seventy three, eighteen seventy three. That time, my dad was semi retired, and uh, he'd have a few artist friends come over on occasion in the house and there was these two critics he said that were just bashing my father because he did all the great Conan paintings through the sixties and the creepy eerie paintings for cat girl and right down the line, uh, night stalker. And these two critics are out there bashing my dad saying that was a fluke what he did and he'll never do it again, blah, blah, blah. And it irritated my dad so a little bit, but he never took it to heart. But every time his friends came over, they'd open the article up and show it how they were bashing my dad. And little by little, he just got more upset. And finally, they left him. He goes, I'm going to get these guys back, finally. I'm not just tired of it. And I said, what are you going to do, kick their ass? He goes, no. He goes, I'd like to. He goes, but I'm going to, I'm going to bury him right now. And he went in the studio, and he created the Civil War and, and Death Dealer back-to-back. Wow. And when those two came out, <laughs> he goes, they went away. And that was his goal. <laughs> but that, the Death Dealer has been, you know, the Conan the Barbarian was his interpretation of Robert E. Howard's character. Certainly which basically turned this small cult following to a huge franchise, but it wasn't his character. It was his interpretation of it. Right. But the death dealer is his creation from start to finish, and uh, you'll see a lot of fabulous things on the death dealer next year like we spoke about earlier. So That's cool. That's, that's fantastic. Hey, man, I was so excited when, and I can't remember which publisher it was, uh, maybe within the last 10 years, when they had stories inspired by your dad's covers. Um, comic stories. I forget what comic book series. Oh yeah, was. Jay Image Photos, Comics. Was, can, was it Image? Yeah, Jay Photos, Image Comics. Yeah, back in around 2007 or eight, somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. those were gorgeous. Well, the, the only the only downside to the, the death deal of stories and novels to this point was all the writers and screenplay writers who came to speak to my dad about the character and how to write the story. The funny thing, I'd be sitting in the studio when they'd come in with their pencil and paper and tape recorders. And they say, okay, let's get to it. Tell us a little bit about the character. He said, well, what do you want to know? He goes, well, who is he? Where does he come from? What does he do? He goes, he goes, how the hell do I know? He goes, what do you mean that? He goes, he goes, I did the painting. I don't know something about him. He goes, well, you created him. He goes, he goes, it's basically my interpretation of death on a battlefield. He goes, what more can I tell you? That's cool. He goes, well, tell us about him. He goes, well, I can't tell you about him. He's a bad dude. You don't want to mess with him. He does this thing and he's gone. And that's about where he left him off. And that's why all the stories to this day were based on the writer's thought process on the character, but not my father's. So over the years from that point on, my father and I discussed it. I'd throw things at him that either stick and say, yeah, I like that, or he'd say, nah. And so over the years, I compiled quite a good uh, 
glossary of how it should be played out. And uh, basically, I did it. And basically, the only the only downside to the the character was my dad did the original in '73. He never wanted to do another one after that because he said. That's as good as it's going to get. Okay. I don't have to do another one. But from the pressure from Mom and Hollywood to where it should be a film because Conan was doing so well and vice versa, back and forth, my dad was forced into doing a second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth one. And what he did was he exposed some of the skin under the under the armor plating. And the chain link story showed, showed the skin, even though it looked deathly and ghostly, like a greenish-white. You know, you know, it's interpretation of like dead skin or whatever, ghoulish sure. skin. Sure. He never wanted to do that, and it gave away a lot of the mystique of the character. And he knew he made a mistake when he did that. So, so uh, that that was his main mistake. So I, I can't discuss what I've done, but next time we speak, uh, I can tell you a little bit about how I, I focused on the character. That sounds great. No, I, I and I appreciate yeah. even that much too, because again, uh, we we just don't know where the inspiration for these things. <laughs> come from what about the molly hatchet uh album cover molly well there's three of them there's the berserker there was dark kingdom and there was death dealer number one and they basically just licensed those pieces of art for the cover he didn't do it for them i see that oh that's the deal. okay because yeah i mean I, you know that's i had seen death dealer obviously before molly hatchet and i had forgotten about the second the, the the second one and and berserker is the one that always comes to mind so what what do you remember what he created berserker for originally uh berserker was just for the for the conan novels and dark kingdom i think was just out of his head that's one of his inspirations just of a you know a viking warrior that's about it okay and uh berserker painting was sold to kirk hammock the guitarist from molly uh, from metallica in 2010 for a million dollars that was the first million dollar painting my dad sold wow that was the, that was the first one, and since then there's been many. I believe it, man. No, yeah. I understand, and and I'm I'm glad the I'm glad the museum is holding on to as many pieces as as it has, uh, because again, it's uh, and and really, I, I want you guys obviously to succeed. So to, to give us the uh, the URL, the the website uh, to go and 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 purchase uh, these things. I mean, the Kickstarter is there for the four shirts, and we discussed that. But yeah, tell uh, beyond that, you know, how else can people support the museum? Okay. Well, if you don't take it to the museum here in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, it's about an hour and a half from Manhattan, an hour and a half from Philadelphia. It's pretty much centralized. But uh, the museum website address is frazettaartmuseum.com or frazettamuseum.com and can get you there either one. And that basically gives you a huge assortment of memorabilia that we've licensed out and created ourselves in the last um, four years. So we have posters, books, master's collection. And the master's collection is... Uh, is your clay that I created to where it's transferred to canvas. And then when I get it in house, I hand color enhance it myself wow. next to the original to make it as close as possible. And I texturize it with brush strokes to where it gives it that depth, you know, to where people just, you can't distinguish it between some of the originals. That's how good they become at the end. That's great. And we sell those with Italian wood frames and they're, they're seven ninety nine to a thousand, which is inexpensive for what, what, what's put into them at all. And they're very collectible. They're limited. And they're about as close as you're going to get to an original that you can't buy and most people can't afford. <laughs> but we're not selling ours anyway. So that's the first thing. But we have everything that you pretty much imagine on the website right now. But there's always new product uh, becoming available as we, as we go on. And the more help from the fans, the quicker we can do the next the next statue or, or writing a new book or whatever it might be. Excellent. And your book, obviously, is uh, available, I'm assuming, at the museum and uh, through Amazon yes. and the like? Correct. 
Correct. If you buy it through the website or call us up directly, uh, I can personalize it for you. Oh, terrific. I can personalize it to a husband or girlfriend so that I can do that as well. That's excellent, man. Hey, seriously, I'm I'm so happy to help spread the word, and I'm really glad that the museum is reopened. And uh, I can only speak for myself and say when things were rough with your, your 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 sisters and siblings and everything, I was really glad that you were out there protecting your dad's legacy and 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 understood where you were coming from. It, I think initially the reports kind of made it sound. Like a, like a crazy situation, and God only knows, because I, I mean, everyone knows family drama it can get kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But thank you for preserving your dad's legacy through the museum, and uh, and and again, yeah, I'm really happy to help you guys keep things going because again, I, I really want the next generations to, in the same way that Norman Rockwell is regarded and stuff. Your dad needs to be on that level of you know Mark Rushmore appreciation of uh, of his body of work and and what he means to uh, the art world. I truly appreciate that. Let everybody know where we are, and you know, not so much to me, but my wife Lori has dedicated her her entire days to that museum. To she actually worked harder to keep that museum than I have, so she owes uh, she's owed more of the gratification than I do at this point. So, when you get to the museum, uh, just be glad to. You know, I appreciate it. You just thank her personally because she has devoted her life to that museum at this point. And thank you for your time for helping us out. Wow, a real pleasure talking to Frank Frazetta Jr. If you want to support the museum, there's two ways to do it. First of all, again, the Kickstarter campaign is going on. Uh, there's still about a week left. And if you search for Kickstarter, uh, Frank Frazetta, uh, World's Limited Edition Silkscreen Prints uh, by Tim Doyle. So if you put in Frank Frazetta and Tim Doyle, you'll likely uh, get the uh, proper Kickstarter. But uh, we've got uh, the link to it as well at warballoon.com. And we also have the link to the Fred, uh, Frazetta Museum, which is frazettamuseum.com. And, man, you can see a picture of the beautiful Spanish villa outside. And uh, it also mentions a lot of other great product going on uh, that you could purchase to help the uh, museum out. And by all means, go to the museum. It's open Thursdays through Sundays from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. The number at the museum is 570-242-6180. And uh, it's 141 Museum Lane, East uh, Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Um, man, I should—I I, got to ask Pants from Comic Geek Speak if he's gone to the Frazetta Museum because I'm sure that's up his alley. But uh, really a pleasure and happy to help the uh, Frazetta Museum spread the word on today's Word Balloon. I hope you enjoyed the show. It was, again, brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much, League, for your support. And uh, you can uh, help me out and subscribe at Word Balloon by going to patreon.com slash Word Balloon uh, or wordballoon.com and clicking on the Patreon ad. So thank you very much for listening today. We got great episodes still to come for November. Look at that, man. November. We've already had four episodes, and it's the 10th of November as I'm releasing today's Frazetta episode. And also, if you uh, haven't noticed... Uh, IDW Sarah Gatos, the wonderful editor that runs all the Star Trek books, uh, we have a wonderful conversation about uh, the current product, uh, and certainly Star Trek Discovery comes up. I can't help it. I am, as a truck fa Trek fan, this is like uh, the best thing that has happened uh, since, uh, you know, the debut of Enterprise, and I'm, I'm really kind of bummed. Uh, I mean, you know, the 2009 and uh, the J.J. movies as well. Anytime there's new Star Trek product, that's... It's my jam, man. Can't help it. So uh, I, if you enjoy Star Trek, I mean, I'm sure you're going to enjoy the conversation that Sarah and I have. 
and uh, check that out as well. But thanks for listening today, and thank you again, uh, Moises Chuan, for uh, also helping out on today's podcast and talking about the Kickstarter campaign. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.